Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious I'm about. Curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships can evolve with people evolve as they grow and change? I have to say, in the 90s, we told much more at work, you know, sitting next to somebody at your desk, the stories we told each other, the things that we came out with, the ways that we would laugh together in the middle of so much death, so much destruction, so much hatred coming at us every day. I mean, it was much more vibrant, really, than if you go into a national LGBTQ organization today. It's, you know, it's sort of much more professionalized and, you know, they have all these donors and, you know, deliverables and, and whatnot. But it was like such anarchic resistance. Welcome to the Curious Fox podcast for those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. And today we're talking about the power of stories to heal and unite. In particular, as we continue to celebrate pride, we want to amplify stories of queer pleasure and joy. We are so fortunate to have this space, this podcast, where we get to craft and narrate our stories and offer this platform to others for them to tell their stories, which, though at times can feel heavy and vulnerable, it ultimately feels affirming and liberating. Often, when we hear or tell queer stories, they are stories of trauma and sadness and hardship. And even those happy ones, they tend to be stories of overcoming obstacles, winning against adversity, healing from hurt. Today's guest reminds us that stories of pleasure, delight, satisfaction, and discovery are equally effective, and even more so, because they keep us focused on the world we're trying to create. Joining us today is sexpert, queer feminist, racial justice activist, writer, podcaster, and radical mom. Yeah, hi. I'm Dr. Jamie Grant. I am a queer feminist, sex activist, and racial justice activist based in Washington, D.C., that's fantastic. What an introduction. I was just going to say, I need to update my bio now. <laughs> so we had an opportunity to talk to you before and kind of hear some of your backstory, but I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how you got into this work. Well, I grew up outside of Boston uh, in the 70s in a pretty much a first-generation Irish-American enclave, a very tight-knit family and extended family. And the two things that were sort of going on that were really huge in my childhood were the Vietnam War and the violent desegregation of the public schools in Boston. And those two events really shaped my thinking about what was right and what was wrong in my family. <laughs> and it really shaped me as I started to build my own identity and build my own community. And uh, one of the things that was really clear was that being born and raised a girl I just was not supposed to ask questions in the way that I was. I wasn't supposed mm. to be critical of what was going on. Uh, everything was not ladylike. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there was a constant uh, reply. And, you know, I think I was just a gender resistor from a very young age because mm. I also had a critique around, you know, race, religion, mm. the structures of our families and communities and, and, and violence, Mm -hmm. And I could see all these things adhering to all these different 
things, right? Including just violence I experienced as a young girl growing up, right? Whether it was, you know, verbal, physical, sexual. So, you know, very early on, all these things sort of came together in my mind as activist fronts to work on toward my own liberation and just liberation. It sounds like as you were sort of making sense of that, that was that's kind of a part of what the work that you do today, telling stories of how to find your identity. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to how you got into that work. How did you find the power of story and why do you think it's important to make sense of our stories, um, especially as queer folk? Well, I guess then, you know, we fast forward to the 90s and I get to D.C. and the AIDS crisis is, you know, in full bloom and your know, crack is in full bloom and gentrification is starting all at the same time. Mm. So I would just say to save our lives. I was in recovery. I just started recovery and addressing, you know, my active addiction, which uh, I came down to me through my Irish family and also was really exacerbated by the kind of violence I survived as a young person. And so I was in a very political, interesting, vibrant, recovering community. And in that community, you you tell each other your stories every day, right? I mean, it was saving my life every single day to sit in those rooms uh, among queers and among straight people, among, you know, people who were running the city among, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you sit in those rooms. I always say you don't have to do outreach in an, in an NA meeting, you know, mm. the entire freaking structure of society is there from the very rich, privileged people who are running everything to, you know, the homeless guy who lives on your street. And that was just a, such a revolutionary space for me because in, in the NA context, the homeless guy can be, you know, the mayor's sponsor, you know, mm -hmm. depending on how much time sober you have. And I mean, that space of learning the power of story was really important to me. So I brought it to my work in LGBT work. One of my best friends started lesbian services at the Whitman Walker Clinic in the 90s. And it was the first lesbian centric health organizing space one of the first ones in the country. And we just started organizing and asking people to tell each other our sex stories because it was enlivening, right? In the middle of all this death and all this stigma and all this, really, I mean, you, we're in a pandemic now, but the pandemic that we were in then, everyone blamed us for and told us it was good that we were dying because we were, you know, a cancer on the community, right? I mean, we actually heard people say things to, like that to us while we were losing like, you know, so many people every week, right, that were our age peers, right? I mean, mm -hmm. people in their 20s. And we started to think about if we were going to take care of LGBTQ women's health, we needed to talk about our sexuality because it had been such a site of violence, stigma, and shame, you know, in, in our formation, mm -hmm. that it was, it was a form of resistance to say, here's Here's how I started having sex. Here's the best sex I ever had. Here's what I like to do. Here's who I, you know, I'm a lesbian and I actually fuck X, Y, Z genders, you know, uh, and people, people just told their, their stories. And I mean, you could just feel, you could feel the, you know, the roof come off the top of the room. And also it just helped us organize, right? People started to want to come to get their breast health exams, <laughs> you know, or their annual physical, because we created this space of mm. resistance and, and vibrance around our sex and our sexuality. Mm. So that's where I really started with my dear friend, Emily Zern, who I always love to credit this incredible organizer here in the nineties, who's been a therapist for now for like 30 years. But it was really her idea because she ran the AIDS hotline and she ran the, the lesbian cancer hotline, right? So mm. she was 
getting so many stories all the time of people in need. And we needed to push out with stories of our love and our connection and, you know, all the things that were getting us hot and getting us off and Mm -hmm. giving us a reason to build, right. And Mm -hmm. and to resist. There's a few things that that I'm sitting with. One is that the power of honesty in the recovery spaces and how truth is healing and for folks in those spaces to be able to be participants of that kind of truth telling and then to go back into the world and have to mask and cover that up and feel ashamed again. And so mm-hmm. you're kind of breaking the barriers and opening up the room. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that the stories that you were telling were not just stories of trauma, which is probably stories that people tell often, but stories right. of pleasure. Yes. Stories of joy. That's the thing. I mean, I say, so, you know, I've been in LGBT organizing space and in organizations over this stretch. And I have to say in the nineties, we told much more at work, you know, sitting next to somebody at your desk, the stories we told each other, the things that we came out with, the ways that we would laugh together in the middle of so much death, Mm -hmm. so much destruction, so much hatred coming at us every day. I mean, it was much more vibrant, really, than if you go into a national LGBTQ organization today. It's, you know, it's sort of much more professionalized and, you know, they have all these donors and, you know, deliverables and and whatnot. But it was like such anarchic resistance. It just, I'm so happy I had that experience as a young person because it's helped me understand the importance of anarchic resistance where you're not just sort of hewed to what a donor wants you to do, that you're accountable to the community and each other. Mm. And, and you just you just build differently, yeah. you know. I bet. I mean, that's so fascinating. And I and I think what I see you do is take all that experience, all those beautiful stories, and create a format so that yes. people can actually figure out how to tell their own story, which I think is so so powerful for those who don't find their way into those rooms that feel safe and the stories are shared. How do you tell your story? Right, and right. you you have a guide for that. Yeah, so Emily and I really just created this desire mapping format out of those early organizing days. And I think one of the reasons that we've been doing the workshop for 15 years, domestically, all over the globe, all kinds of people in, you know, desperate situations. I mean, people people in Russia, you know, have done the, the workshop, folks at the Beijing Community Center, people whose expression is much more repressed than ours Mm -hmm. and and surveilled and uh, Mm -hmm. regulated by the state, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that we do that makes it work everywhere is a couple of things, but the container that we create is really intentional for the stories, right? So one of the things about the container is we always have a multiracial team. And if we're in another country, we, our team is built of people who are local. So that we're never sort of parachuting in and we're also not centering a white supremacist idea of sexuality, which Mm -hmm. in so much sexual liberation space all across the globe, it's male centric, it's white supremacist, Mm -hmm. it's cis and heterosexist, right? Mm -hmm. And so we really very consciously in the teams that we've built have tried to turn that on its head. So we always have people of color majority on our team uh, we often have, you know, trans and gender non-binary people, if not in the majority, at least half of the people mm-hmm. in the faculty on any given time. And so the faculty for any one of these, you know, workshops that we create consists of four or five storytellers. So we're very conscious about gender, race, sexual expression, ways of being and trying to curate a team and then facilitators and vibe watchers. 
which means, you know, at the beginning, after we lay a very clear set of ground rules that really encourage people to be self-reflective rather than commenting on anybody else or a lover or someone else's embodiment or way of being or, or group politics, right? It's, it's speaking from the eye through the whole time. And then we introduce anywhere from two to five people who are dedicated to their well-being in the room because we note that trauma very often comes up when we start to think about our sex stories. I mean, things are very complex in our stories and a lot of times in not the best and untenable and even abusive situations, we've learned things about ourselves that are important about our sex, our sexuality and our desire and trying to sip those things out together in a room of 10 or 150 or 200 people can be challenging. So we identify the vibe watchers. They're everything from people who really have a spiritual approach to healing, indigenous approach to healing, to Western medicine approach to healing. uh, And again, lots of different embodiments, genders, races, so that if you're in the room, you can look over at a vibe watcher and someone sort of reflects you better, right? And somebody that you feel like you could talk to about whatever's going on. So we put the vibe watchers together, we lay our ground rules. And I think setting that container is one of the most important things about desire mapping. Um, I always center that I'm a survivor of sexual violence when we start the process, because we want to center that survivors are in the room rather than have it be kind of like an off to the side thing or something that people think they can't share or that, you know, they're the only one in the room or it's wrong. And, uh, you know, often in our storytelling group, it's a majority of people who, who've survived sexual violence and talk about it in some way, right? In terms of how they identify or how they've healed or whether it's a part of their story that they want to share. So in that way, I think I always say I'm a racial justice acti- activist and a sex activist. We're, I'm doing the work of all those things at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Which is really important to me in the work. Again, I think so much, quote, sex lib spaces are, they're exclusive, and uh, we're really trying to change who gets to tell the stories, mm. whose, whose stories are centered, what is a sexually liberating way mm. of our communities and building our lives. Uh, so who's telling the story is really important. Who's in the room is really important. Mm. So I love it. I just love doing it. Mm. <laughs> and then do you walk the storytellers through the process, through these are the ways in which you're going to tell your story? Yes. I mean, I always um, do prep with people. I now have, you know, a group of some like 50 to 70 people have been doing this with me for years and years. So I often ask different storytellers to come back. But if I'm going somewhere new, like often if I'm on a college campus and I'm mapping on a campus, I'll just ask the people who brought me to give me three or four volunteers. And then I do you know, Zoom or and in-person prep. And I just take them through the six questions that are our core questions and ask Mm. them to think about their own journey and come up with one story they want to tell. And then we'll have some back and forth. A lot of times people don't tell me exactly what they're going to say, but they tell me what they're thinking about. And I'll just be helpful, I think, around making sure people are going to be self-referential. And also making sure people aren't just talking about politics, which is, you know, what everybody talks about, right? They'd they'd really rather not go. So many of us, I mean, nobody's ever asked us what we're actually doing in bed, how it feels, what kind of vulnerabilities come up for us, you know, what, how we experience ourselves when we maybe feel a little out of control, when desire like just clobbers you and it's like, oh, this is what I'm about right? Mm. Oh, this is something that's meaningful to me. I had no idea. Those are the kinds of pivotal experiences of our desire that this workshop really helps us go back and look at. Mm. A lot of us file those away so quickly 
either because we're overwhelmed ourselves uh, or the people that we're with don't really know how to support us as we're going Mm -hmm. through it, right? A lot of people, because of their own stuff around their sex and sexuality, you know, um, don't mean to, but often shame us or make us feel like we're too much or Mm -hmm. like they don't know what the hell to do, right? So for a lot of us, some of the moments that have been most important to us, we've just stuffed them. And in the workshop, you just see it over and over again. People come upon their story and it's like, oh my God, how could I have forgotten this, right? Mm. Forgotten. Everybody wants us to forget those moments because they're powerful. Mm. And they're, you know, and if we can claim them, I mean, I'm more powerful because I know those stories about myself and I can build my own, you know, set of relationships, connections, Mm. sexual practices, sexy connections, on those stories rather than sort of flailing around out here without a path. Yeah. So Jackie and I are really curious about this process. When we spoke to you, you <laughs> told us about these stories and we, yes. we were really good and we like didn't look at anything. Ah, and so we good. would love to be a part of this process. Yes. It is my book, Great Sex Mapping Your Desire. And I wanted it to look like something you'd scribble in as mm-hmm. a teenager. You know what I mean? Sure. So you want me to give you a couple of the key questions? Yes, please, Are you ready? Please. <laughs> okay, you're going to write them down. Um, I'm going to I'm going to give you three. Okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. What sexual encounters or encounters with my desire stand out as most memorable over the course of my sexual life? So sexual encounters or encounters with our desire. And when I set this up, I often say. Sometimes, you know, these, these encounters with your desire could be in passing. It happens at a bus stop. It happens with someone you don't even know their name, right? Mm -hmm. But it stayed with you for some reason because of what happened in the moment. Mm -hmm. So think about sexual encounters Mm -hmm. or encounters with your desire that stand out as most memorable. What sex or desire experiences made me feel most true to myself and why? Okay, I'm going to do four. (laughs) When did I learn something important about myself, even if it was something I never wanted to learn? What was it? And this one happens to be a favorite among mappers. Mm -hmm. What lover or crush do I miss the most? And what do I miss about them? Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm just... There's so many things that are happening, right? Right, right? Like, I just have a huge grin just in thinking about the answers to these things. And I feel a real excitement about the ability to be able to talk about these things. Unless one has, I think, really close friend or friendships, one doesn't necessarily talk about their no. sexual adventures. And even then I feel like unless the dynamic, you know, depending on the dynamic, it's limited, right? We, no, we right. Really get into the detail of it. No, in some ways, like our friends can police us on these things, right? Yeah. Or, you know, the, the ways are, d- depending on what the ongoing conversation is among your friends, mm-hmm. it can be very hard to have these. I would say most of the people in workshops, this is the only space they've ever mm-hmm. spoken in this way. And again, yeah. I lay those questions out and then I have five people actually answer the questions before mm-hmm. people go to their own worksheets, right? So they've seen five people of all kinds of different embodiments, genders, ages, relationship configurations answer these questions. Mm-hmm. Right? In five to seven minute stories. And then really the roof comes off the room. 
I mean, really, everybody just is like, this is the space. It's liberation, baby. We can say whatever we want mm. because, you know, the thing that we center, as long as you have consent and mutual respect, it doesn't matter what our identities are. Mm. We can do whatever the fuck we want. That's the whole point of mm. sexual liberation, mm. right? And for many of us, whatever identities we've constructed and the communities we've created around those identities, it can be very binding and limiting around what it is we're supposed to be doing in bed, what we're supposed to want, what our favorite practices are, how we want people to relate to us, how we want to relate to them. You know, it's just crushing to me, having been tossed out of my Irish Catholic family for being queer, to then come into lesbian community ostensibly in the 80s and be so shut down because I liked penetrative sex, because I wanted to bottom because I really was looking at pain and ecstatic experiences because I was interested. I was always polyamorous and I had always had everybody trying to shove me into a monogamy box. I mean, I was just the worst eighties lesbian you could imagine, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, wow, you know, I mean, I lost my family for this and I just thought I'm not going to do this. I have to find my people, which thank goodness I did. And again, the recovery spaces of learning how like, really telling the truth is going to get you where you want to go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> telling the truth is the thing that is going to help you build your path. So mm -hmm. again, I was able to take that and, and move it into the sex space. I have a, a question for you, just as a reflection from your experience, 80s lesbian experience to current day lesbian experience. And I know that you mentioned in more of the sort of the nonprofit world, the, the, the sort of the more of the, the corporate side of, of sex, that it's become more sterile, it's become more conformist, it's become more corporate. So that's in the, the, the workspace. Do, how do you think the social space has changed? Well, I do think the 90s, we created something of a revolution around mm -hmm sexual practices, what we could do. I mean, I think a lot of the 90s organizing was really throwing off that sort of fundamentalism that came into the 80s, which I think, you know, um, not to shit on 80s lesbians. I mean, there was just so much violence people were recovering from mm. and and so much precarity in our lives. It makes sense that you have kind of a, a, a fundamentalist moment about mm. identity, right? Mm -hmm. But in the 90s, I think, So many of us were just busting out of that together and found each other. And, you know, you just have so many people writing, you know, and I, I think about Dorothy Allison, who wrote Bastard Out of Carolina at that point, was the first lesbian to win like a National Book Award. She'd been vilified as one of the founders of the lesbian sex mafia in New York in the 80s when everybody was anti-BDSM. And then, you know, poof, in the 90s, really so many people did so much incredible work and that shifted. Now I think... One of the things that I worry about this generation, and I won't speak or evaluate in any kind of way for folks who are younger, is that, ah, you know, everybody's observing everybody so mm -hmm. much, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody's branding themselves, which, you know, I just think is the death of any kind of liberation. Like, mm. fuck branding. Do your work. Be yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, building brands in organizations are, are death to movement organizations. I think the same about building brands with people. It's like, if you're so worried about who's on the balcony and how they're perceiving you, you are not going to live the life you want to live. Mm. So I worry about that. I mean, I see it in my own kids, how observed they are, how much they're, they're struggling with people parsing language and parsing every bit little expression that they mm. have. I'm so happy I had some privacy around my own mistakes and my own journey of, mm -hmm. you know, hunting and pecking and figuring out things. 
I think just partly because of the 90s organizing and the organizing that's happened all the way along, there's a much broader set of understandings about what LGBTQ women who partner with women or partner with anybody, (laughs) you know, what our sexual expressions are, like what our sexual practices are. I think we've Mm -hmm. carved that space out well with each other. But I do worry about um, how observed everybody feels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think right now, part of the, the, the trends that we're seeing in social media, particularly in TikTok, it went from authenticity to now now pseudo-authenticity, now branded authenticity, right? So it went from being very made up and having the right lighting to now that actually not being the thing and you, and you have to look like you just woke up and the camera's at a strange angle, but now that is intentional. Now people are preparing themselves to show up in that way. And so I think the original intention around sharing authentic- sharing authentically to have connection and representation was was wonderful. But now that there's an audience for that, there is now a shift in terms of how do I grow my audience in this authenticity space? And I'm wondering what your thoughts are around in terms of then being able to tell one's story, like the motivation of being able to tell one's story, because it does feel so personal. But could we then utilize that in a bad way, if you will, to say, like, here's my story, but really trying to draw in an audience for that? Yeah. I mean, why are we telling our stories? To what end? Mm -hmm. For me, I am a gender and racial justice revolutionary. I want to see this entire order gone. I want to see a totally different way of organizing our lives, you know, top to bottom. And so that's why I'm telling my story. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling it to build followers. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling it to build my livelihood, right? And in desire mapping space, one of the things that happens is 150 people in a room, all of a sudden they're in community talking this way. And mm-hmm. one of the things we say is the most important thing is to find that conversation. You start it here, is to go out and find the people who can hear you, you know, create these spaces together. Mm. And we have given you a way of thinking about it around centering respect and mutuality. We've given you Mm. a way to think about it around care and taking Mm. care that trauma is here because we live in such a fucking violent order and we can do this. We can be ourselves. And, and people are like, well, why tell these sex stories? A pleasure. (laughs) I mean, I am, I am not here to liberate everybody but myself. I mean, the vision I have for a just world is a world full of pleasure where pleasure is central, where, uh, it's how we meet each other. It's, you know, there's so much laughter. There's so much connectivity. There's so much more, um, touching that feels good, uh, you know, Mm. consensual and casual and amazing than what we have now, right? Because we live in such a violent space, it's difficult to even think about touching people, right? In Mm -hmm. public, people that we don't know. What if we lived in a place that was completely different and it was just like touch was welcome? But we can't even imagine building a world where touch, casual touch is just welcome from all kinds of people because they all have our best interest at heart. Mm. Right. They, you know, they're not trying to get something from us. They're not trying to use us in some way. Mm. That's the world I'm headed toward. And that's why I want to tell these stories, not just to belong to a violent order or get my own piece of it. Mm, Yeah. 
I think that's probably why doing them in these workshop style closed intimate rooms is more effective than doing it on on TikTok where you kind of you're you're sort of speaking out to the interwebs whereas in I think in in these intimate cozy rooms where everyone's in the same boat I can see how doing it in that format is more authentic and and, and thus more healing and informative and insightful so I think your know, medium is the message right doing them in in that format I can see how it's more effective and mm-hmm. and trying to do them on Instagram or TikTok where you're kind of narrating to you know your followers your followers right yeah, yeah. Followers. yeah it is a performative space rather than a healing and an introspective space I'd imagine yeah, yeah but I I mean I don't want to dismiss those spaces I think a lot of good work information is happening in those spaces. Sure. Some of my friends were talking about the difference between fighting and building, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. often in organizational spaces, we're fighting yes. the forces that are coming at us, which is work we have to do. Yeah. And I just, you know, I'm 61 now. I want to be in building space. I'm, I, I've fought my ass off for mm-hmm. 40 yes. years longer. And I really want to build. I love yeah. the building spaces. And I think if we don't have enough of them, we lose hope yeah. and we tire out. Mm-hmm. We wear out. We don't know what we are building toward. I mean, the thing people say about the workshop space is that it's kind of a future space. Mm-hmm. Like for the three hours, five hours that you're in it, you're in a space that we, it's, it's aspiring. It's, it's imaginative. It's like, what if we lived like this all the time? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and those spaces are so precious to us as organizers. We've got to have them. Yeah. I just think let's just build out. Let's just build out. Like I'm in there for three hours and now I have this community of like 50, 60 people who I can talk about sex with all the time. Mm-hmm. The thing we say to each other is what's on your map now? You know, what's up mm-hmm. for you? This year I found a new thing on my map. I can't believe I didn't have this on my map before. <laughs> it's a language, right? Yeah. And we're doing it over 15 years and there's never, you know, nobody ever stops finding things. It's incredible. And, you know, I every time I give a workshop, there's a mind-blowing moment for me. Mm-hmm. There's just like, I can't believe this person just shared this, whether it's, you know, the faculty I've set up or somebody in the room who yeah. just stands up and says something that is just such an unbelievable gift to me mm-hmm. around, and all of us, around what we need to just imagine and go forward. Yeah. Yeah. Effie, do you, do you want to choose one of the, the four questions? Sure. And hear your story? Go. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let me look at these questions quickly. I think I want to go with the first one. What sexual encounters or encounters with my desire stand out most memorable? I feel like that I can think to that. Um, and I think, um, let me just gather my thoughts, <laughs> scroll through the memories. I can do one if you want me to start while you scroll, but yes, yes, yes. Show us how. Well, I had this Um, I hesitate to call him a lover. I had this, there was an encounter over many, many months. It was this person who I met online. It's such a sexy story. Met online when I was, you know, in a open relationship, but the terms of the relationship was the person I was with was the decider, right? Which I was a bottom. And I really liked that he decided who I could be with. Mm -hmm. And so this person approached me and we had lots of things line up, but it was like, Oh, sorry. You know, like, my partner picks and he does not pick you. So, so the person went away and I, then it's 10 years later, I'm not with the person who was deciding anymore, uh, their parenting partner, but not a lover anymore. And I run into them again. And it turns out for 10 years, they've been 
following my work. Mm-hmm. You know, like they, and, and, you know, at first I was like, mm, is this creepy? But, <laughs> but the thing is they did not intrude on my life in any way. Right. They just actually had a Google alert on their phone about anything that I did. And I was like, (laughs) 10 years? I mean, that's... And here's the thing. When he told me, I was like, this is so fucking hot. Why is this so hot? (laughs) You know, so we get into the thing. And I mean, he just, he'd read my articles. He, you know, I was just like, damn. And he's like a neuroscientist, right? And he's got a full life himself. It's not like he's sitting around waiting for me or anything, but it's just like, it's so interesting to have been observed all these years. And I'm a middle child Mm. and I was unobserved in my family, except to correct me. Right. I mean, the sort of attending kind of stuff. No. So I'm like, Oh my God, this is hitting me in such an intense way. So we build this relationship where I do the find my phone, you know, find you on your phone thing. Right. Mm. So every time I leave my house, I go to work, I get in the car. He gets an alert that I'm moving somewhere, mm-hmm. right? And so I said to him, you know, what is this doing for you? Mm-hmm. He says, I get hard every time. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm so in. <laughs> <laughs> I am so in. And then I would just get aroused now, just leaving my house, thinking that he was, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we just had this crazy thing for a few months that actually just, got to be too much for me, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's like if you're thinking of, and I tried to bind it and then it didn't really work. So he, you know, shuffled off to his life. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, learning this desire point that I actually felt so cared for mm-hmm. and so desired around somebody really wanting to observe mm-hmm. my movements. And, and again, not control them, not intrude mm-hmm. on them but that they felt gratified watching me go through my day. Oh my Mm. God. I had more orgasms in those three months. I mean, it was fucking insane. (laughs) I just felt so turned on constantly. It wasn't, it was just nuts. Amazing. So again, I think this, this Mm -hmm. thing from my mother used to say, Oh, you were such a good baby. You could put you down in the crib and never think about you again the whole rest of the day. (laughs) Cause she was a very, overburdened person. Mm. Right. And so I just started to think about that story in my childhood Mm. and why this particular way of desiring me was so meaningful to Mm. me. Mm. So anyway, that's a favorite. Great story. I want now just hours of telling these stories. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes. I also wonder if he still has the Google alerts on. His yeah, phone. don't you? <laughs> I totally do. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I you want to know? <laughs> That's I have I no know. idea. But interesting. Yeah. He doesn't. You know, he's not. A, he can't. He can't observe me on my phone anymore. Yeah. Right? I took yeah, that yeah, off. Yeah. But maybe he's going to get a Google alert about this podcast. It's, maybe it's he's listening. <laughs> maybe yep. I, if you're listening, sir. <laughs> yeah, we th- we're talking that was about good. you. That was good. <laughs> nice. Um, okay, my story. I, I've told this story on this podcast before. I have a, a just strike of luck that, despite being born a woman, a girl in another country, that's you know still traditional and have seen and heard all the stories, somehow my relationship with my body and sexuality just didn't get the memo. I got the memo about everything else. um, But when it comes to my sexuality, I remember discovering my vulva at a very, very young age. We're talking about like four, thinking 
this feels good and thinking that we're going to be BFFs forever. Like I, I, and then once that connection was in place and I was an only child, so I spent a lot of time on my own, which gave me like the space and I was unobserved as well. Um, mm-hmm. My parents were busy and doing their thing and I was unobserved and, and by myself and, and I just had plenty of space and, and privacy to get to know my body. And somewhere along the line, it got shrink wrapped in thing, in impenetrable shrink wrap. And I just never felt shame around that. What I did feel was I felt like people were uneasy if I was to talk about my sexuality openly. So I just didn't with them with thinking like, I don't want to make them feel awkward. Mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, you don't get it. It's going to be awkward. So I'm just going to keep it to myself. Even right. if you shame me, I'm like, it just comes from ignorance. Like you don't know what I know about my body. So like, thank you, but no, thank you is kind of my attitude for, for a long time. It also, what it also did is because I stopped talking about it, it stopped me from aligning with people who are interested in sex. Mm. So what I was having was, you know, healthy amount of sex with people who were interested in either me and my body or their own sexuality. And then years went past. I had, you know, uh, average sex, normal sex. And then when I moved to New York about 10, 11 years ago, I met somebody who for the first time I'd met somebody who was not only interested in having sex with me or their own pleasure, but they were interested in sex as a topic and they were learning about it and they were adventurous and they wanted to try things. Mm-hmm. And for the first time I was like, Oh, a kindred spirit. <laughs> and those encounters with that person, which were good, good three years. We dated for a good three years and they, we went to sex parties and we had orgies and we tried things and toys. And it was a safe experimental space where for the first time that I could really just like, try BDSM, try spiritual sexuality, try toys, try fetish, like all the things. And it was just an, like an adventure playground oh. for adults with somebody who was as nerdy as I was about like sexual experiences. And they took so much pleasure in crafting and creating oh. stories and adventures. So I'd be like, let's try this. And he'd just go away and, and like, he'd get all the things and he'd be like, okay, oh. this is the story. We're going to do this and do that and do oh. this. And that, those three years were probably where I felt most sexually self-expressed. It was like the hottest and the most varied and different adventurous sex that I've had that allowed me to get to know myself, even if it wasn't good. And if, even if I was like, Oh, this didn't work or this actually doesn't feel good. It just, it felt like information and insight and wonder and discovery, not like, Oh, this was a shitty experience and I don't want to have it, have it again. Mm. Um, so those are my three glorious years of really following my desire with somebody who was also interested in sex as this like powerful, fun place that you can hang out in. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you some questions? Please. Oh yes. So do you think that they've, seem like, like a conductor and, or, you know, they're doing, they're conducting the orchestra. They're, they're putting all the things together. Do you think that was a big part of it? Or do you think the nerdiness or that you were sort of on a similar plane of discovery together? Like, or are all of those things in there? Like, Honestly, it felt like a real collaboration. Like I could come up with the ideas and he could really like color them in. Like I would give, Mm. I would like sketch things out and I was allowed, like I could go anywhere. And I think that's what was hot about it. There were no boundaries other than my own. Mm -hmm. And he was a willing partner and I could like sketch out ideas and he was 
just very creative and imaginative. He would just like color them in and make them like brighter and shinier and more adventurous and more eccentric that I could ever imagine. Uh And I think just the journey part of it that I could then go on this journey that I sketched, but it was still new and, and there was like unexpected twists and turns. The part of it was like, he was also in discovery journey of his own. He had his own experience and I was very clear about that. And then I was, a tool and I say that from a like a good place like I was a tool in his in his adventure and he was a tool in in my adventure and I liked that too I liked being a part of someone's discovery mm-hmm. and that was also that was also hot mm-hmm. you know like as they were touching my body it wasn't that they were touching their body they were like looking for things seeking things and like learning things about themselves and being so part of that experience was really hot for me Mm-hmm. like really intimate like intimacy into me you see i was like yeah we're we're literally we're seeing in into each other right now right. <laughs> so collaborator you really like a collaborator mm-hmm. you like the collaborator to bring a different set of mm-hmm. things than you mm-hmm. have yeah well That's thank you for your story it's thank incredible. you thank you for listening i will i will answer the same question then because that also spoke to me. So Effie did not get the memo. I got both hers and mine. Mm-hmm. I got a double set of memo. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a very religious environment and soaked in all of the shame that exists around my body. And am someone who was and is very sexual. So turn on, get turned on really easily, can have multiple orgasms. Like just I, I'm, my mind and my body crave that part of who I am. Mm-hmm. And so that felt incredibly destructive as a young person because it was continual shame around, particularly masturbation. At some point, I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast, I had made a deal with God that if I I, I made a net, like a proclamation, I would never masturbate again, which I didn't even know that language at that point, but I would never touch myself again because I knew that, that we weren't supposed to do that. And that if I did any future family I was supposed to have, if I was supposed to have three children, if I masturbated one more time, then God would take away one of those children. Oh my God. If I did it twice, then God would take away two of those children. Because I thought to myself, I have to figure out what is the, the largest consequence that will get me to stop, to stop because I can't stop. Right. And there were all these like words workarounds like I would not do anything with my hands but then I would lean up against the bed because maybe that didn't count like it was really just inside like all of these things were happening inside of me and it wasn't until I was married I was married to my ex-husband that I felt like okay now this is okay like I'm having sex and and it's okay like like God and my ancestors and like all (laughs) that like there's no judgment now but it's and and so that brought me joy but it still felt closed off because I knew but yet didn't express that I was pansexual that I I was attracted I knew and couldn't express yet that I was polyamorous and so I was having now sanctioned sex but it wasn't the fullness of what I wanted to have. Mm-hmm. That still was off the table. You know, many years later, my husband and I were, were together for over a decade, had a, had a child. And at some point, I was really trying to work on opening up our, our marriage and had built a friendship and then a romantic con- connection with my now wife. And for many reasons, including my desire to open up, that, that marriage ended. And I started to then now date my wife. But that still felt all these things. I still felt like I'm not supposed to be with a woman and I'm not supposed to be doing this. And for a period of overlap when we were separated but not divorced, I'm still married. And there was just yeah. such shame that I, I like finally had the thing 
I finally like could now be with multiple people because she was also open. I could now finally be with different gender experts. I could, and I couldn't yet still enjoy it. Love public displays of affection, but we would go outside and I would, you know, retreat my hand because mm-hmm. what would people think and see? And, and if children saw this, what message is this to children to see me doing this? And I remember one time in particular, we were at her house and I remember we, we were making love, we were having sex and I remember being laying down on my back and, and with my, you know, looking kind of up to the to the ceiling, and in that moment thinking, this cannot be wrong, mm-hmm. and having a direct conversation with God and saying, I am inviting you into this space because this just cannot be wrong. It felt so meaningful and beautiful and real that I could not imagine that God did not want that for Mm -hmm. me. And it was the very first time in my life where those two pieces of my, my faith and my religion and all those things could come together with my sexuality because my faith was important to me as, as much as my sexuality. And so there was, I remember just looking up at the ceiling and, and naming that and saying, this is not wrong. And I invite you into this space. Mm. Yeah. It's incredible. You know, it's been a journey since, but, you know, now I am on a podcast and talk about sex (laughs) for for 100,000 people. Um, So certainly there was an evolution there, but it was the first moment where I just rejected all of the noise that I had heard and I decided to listen to that internal voice and then Mm. I I didn't want to look back after that. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, one of the things that really strikes me is about how much, you know, I mean, grooming is such a word everybody's using Mm. right now uh, for Mm. us. Uh, Again, I mean, everything Mm -hmm. old is new again. I feel like I'm, you know, back in my 60s childhood. But I feel like the ways that religious shame gets Mm. thrown on us, the ways that familial shame gets thrown on us, it grooms us for violence, Right. Because it grooms us to give away parts of ourselves that are so crucial, so young. You're talking to yourself as a child and saying, I, you know, you can take my child if I do this again to myself. Right. I mean, that kind of psychic violence in which we are taught to turn away from ourselves to like core, you know, things that are about our essence. Right. That are about, you know, what I think of as a spiritual core you know, Mm -hmm. our values core, our pleasure core. Mm -hmm. And so that when people start to act violently toward us in this, you know, environment, we don't even know how to respond because we've abandoned ourselves so long ago around Mm -hmm. what we've been told we can have, what's appropriate. I just think that is a kind of grooming all women get Mm -hmm. around our sexuality that we we have to abandon ourselves early because it's wrong. Whatever whatever kind of sexuality we have, any kind of pursuit of pleasure is wrong. Mm-hmm. So when people start aggressing on us, we think we have, you know, no claim to our own bodies. We think mm-hmm. we we can't even respond, right? So mm-hmm. and I think that moment you're talking about about turning it on its head. Like you're actually telling God they can come into the room rather than God telling you whether this is an okay thing, right? You're mm-hmm. saying I'm you can come along here because I have found the truth about myself. Mm. You know, I have found God in this space. I've found a spiritual opening that I can't deny, that nobody could deny. This mm. is real, right? And 
I do think when we can find those stories and bring them back together, I mean, shame's so corrosive. It takes our power. It takes so much from us. I mean, this is what our enemies know. They want us to be powerless. They don't want us to envision a world better than this, mm-hmm. right? And to go toward it. They want us to be mired in this shit. I'm just in the ecstasy of your story and mm-hmm. and the power of it. It's like, God, you, I invite you here mm-hmm. if, if, you know, because I've, I've found it, right? That's mm-hmm. just incredible. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah. Um, it was beautiful to be able to share our stories and, and answer your questions or one of your questions. Yeah. We are wondering if we can um, learn a little bit more about you sure, sure. in our rapid fire round. Yes. So we have four fun questions that we ask everyone and we okay. love everyone's answers. So there's no right answer, just whatever comes up for you. Yep. Jackie, do you want to go for it? Sure. So the first question is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self about love, sex, or relationships? Uh, I think I would just really want to affirm myself because I think very early on I was a critical thinker and I was pushing back on stuff and I would just want to say, you're right. (laughs) They're wrong. You know, like just, you know, you keep doing that. Keep doing that. This is, this is going to get you where you want to go. Nice. Love that. Um, What is one romantic or sexual adventure on your bucket list? Mm. I would say I still, I've had plenty of group things and triads and whatever, but you know, I've never had one where everybody's really just focused on me. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say that is still really where I'm just really the subby sub sub. And um, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of doms and there's just discussion about me and, you know, just, just, it's really about me. Nice. I would say that that is still on my list. Sure. That somehow now just made it to my list. (laughs) (laughs) Now it is. Thank you very much for that. Um, (laughs) Dr. Grant, how do you challenge the status quo? Mm, I think this work. I mean, I, 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 again, thinking about building all the time in this, you know, I would say I come from a basketball family. I feel like I'm in the fourth quarter. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you are a basketball fan, everything happens in the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. You know, you lead up, you have a good game, you can lose it all or you can win it all in the fourth quarter. It's crucial. So Mm -hmm. I feel very strongly about this fourth quarter being about building. Um, Of course, I'm fighting, but I don't want to fight as much. I don't have the appetite for it anymore. Mm -hmm. Really want to be in those rooms where we're in future spaces, where we're Mm -hmm. creating the kind of world we want to be in. And we're giving each other a lot of hope and a lot of ideas. And we're just, we're doing it regardless of what else is going on in Mm. the ether, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that reframe between fighting and building. That is something that I'm going to take with me. Yeah. It's like the difference between surviving and thriving, right? Um, What are you curious about lately? Mm. Well, I'm not having a lot of sex right now. I would say the last couple of years. I'm just very curious about that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I am... I'm really happy. I mean, my, my kids are doing well, gone through this accountability process with my ex. And, you know, there's just mm-hmm. so much more love between me and my parenting partner. Mm-hmm. It's been in my life for 15 years. So I had this amazing child with. I have eight people in my life, my eight that I sort of used to say I always had like one bad, uh, you know, I, one one in rather inattentive girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, and now I have eight overly attentive best friends who are really like having the best lover you could ever imagine, except Mm -hmm. 
not, we're not having any sex, right? Although I, I do have sex with one of them, but she lives far away. And I mean, I see her a few times a year. Mm. So one, one person of my eight is a sex, sex partner, but it's a very non-sexual group and it's so enlivening and they're so doting and I see them all the time. They call me all the time. They text me all the time. They tell me they love me all the time. So I'm in this incredible basking kind of time of being seen in my fullness and appreciated and I'm not having a lot of sex. And so Mm. I just, I'm like, that's Mm. curious. That's very curious. (laughs) And what do I think about it? And, you know, and occasionally somebody pops up as a possible new Mm. sex partner. And it's like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm. I think I really am looking for that Dom who's going to orchestrate that, Mm. that Mm. subby, moment for me mm. otherwise i'm fine you know what i mean sure. I've, I've had so much sex i've had such an incredibly full life i i'm really loving being attended to in the way that i am mm. so that's a very curious moment for me because especially because i'm in all these spaces where i'm talking to people about sex and i'm not having a lot of sex mm-hmm. so it's just like mm, that's interesting mm, okay mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. curious well, thank you. This was a very meaningful conversation. Yeah, was, uh, for me too. I loved hearing yeah. your stories. Thank oh, you so yeah. much for thank them. You. Thank you. To hear more from Dr. Jamie Grant, find her on Twitter at Dr. Jamie Grant or on Medium, or you can listen to episodes from her podcast, The Just Sex Podcast. To get her workbook, Great Sex, Mapping Your Desire, visit politics-pros.com. We would love to hear your stories. Head to our Facebook group and share your story and discuss the episode with other listeners. Email us at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com or give us a call at 646-450-9079. And give others the gift of stories by sharing this episode with partners and friends and by leaving us a rating and a comment on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. If you're still curious... Join us on Patreon for mini episodes, special after hours content, and over 50 videos from educator led workshops. Go to Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes. This episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock, who is instrumental in us telling our stories. Our intro music is composed by Dev Saha. We are so grateful for their work, and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Yeah, I, I have to be like softly spoken. NPR, This is exactly NPR voice. Hey, I'm Dr. Jamie Grant. Okay. I do. Nice. La 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 la. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.